Hi, this is Marlene, and I want to welcome you to another episode of Stories of the Supernatural. Whether you're watching a video or listening to a podcast, please like and subscribe to us so that you can get notification of when a new show is released. Links to videos or MP3 files can be found on MiamiGhostChronicles.com. Go to MarlenePardo.com for information on new book releases. I narrate several podcast series that can be found on major podcast platforms and can also be listened to via Alexa, Sonos, and other home systems. Look for Supernatural Storytime for scary storytelling, Nightshade Diary for classic horror and adventure stories, Stories of the Supernatural for interviews with different guests on the show. If you want to get noteworthy news about the paranormal world, true crime, conspiracy stories, and anything that is just plain weird, you can visit Strange Than Fiction Stories tab at MiamiGhostChronicles.com or find us on Blogspot. I want to thank you for being part of my audience, and I think you are all wonderful. Hi everybody, this is Marlene, and uh, for this episode of Stories of the Supernatural, uh, I wanted to go ahead and retell some interesting stories about haunted Hollywood land, which is as Hollywood was once known, that iconic sign that you see there on the side of the hill. And we're going to go back into some stories having to do with either uh, cursed objects like Rudy Valentino's ring, also, of course, some of their houses. And some of them you might think is only urban legend, but you'll see that in some of these stories there absolutely seems to be a trend of either ill luck bad fortune, or in some cases, even murder, death, and of course, ghost. So hang on tight, and I hope you enjoy these stories about haunted Hollywood land. The Cursed Precious Thing There are objects that become cursed, either intentionally, by ritual, or by the nature of the person who originally owned it. The following is a story that played out almost a hundred years ago. It involves a ring that held a malicious curse that caused its excessive owners to suffer injury, misfortune, even death. It's 1920 and Hollywood has not produced talkies yet, but it has produced silent film heartthrob. One of them was Rudolph Valentino. The story goes that one day Valentino saw a silver ring with a tiger's eye stone in a San Francisco curio shop. The owner told him it was called the Destiny Ring and that he did not want to sell it because it was cursed. Whether he really did not want to sell it or he wanted to whet Valentino's appetite for the forbidden is unknown. But after that day, the ring had a new owner. He wore it in his next film, The Young Raja, in 1922, which was a flop. He stopped wearing the ring until he was filming Son of the Sheik in 1926, where he used it as a costume prop. This would be his last film. Three weeks later, while touring in Manhattan to promote the film, he collapsed at the Hotel Ambassador, suffering from appendicitis. He died on August 23rd from perionitis and pleuritis. He was 31 years old, and he was wearing the ring. The streets of Manhattan were thronged by an estimated 100,000 fans. There were reports of suicides over Valentino's unexpected death, 
including to women who tried to kill themselves in front of the hospital where he died. Actress Paula Negri, a Hollywood vamp who Valentina was romantically linked to, became the next owner of the Destiny Ring. She collapsed at Valentino's funeral and she became seriously ill afterwards. Her career started sliding downwards after this event. In the next few months, she entered into a disastrous marriage and had a miscarriage. She lived until she was 90, but perhaps she suspected the effect of the ring because she gave it away despite claiming that Valentino had been the love of her life. Eight years later, director Lansing Brown was planning a film about Rudy Valentino. He was considering using an actor and crooner named Russ Colombo to play Valentino in the movie. Pola Negri was introduced to him, and she was so impressed by how much he looked like Valentino that she gave him the prized memento of her famous lover. This was something you'd think she would never have done, considering its significance, unless her real intention was to put distance between herself and the ring. It did not take long before the ring claimed another victim. It's now September of 1934, and Columbo was visiting Lansing Brown at his home. Brown mishandled an antique firearm he had in his collection. It went off. A ball ricocheted off a table, and it embedded itself above Columbo's left eye. He died a few hours later because of this freak accident. He was 26 years old, and he had been using the ring. Was it coincidental that Carol Lombard, Columbo's love interest, died in a plane crash only a few years later, in 1943? The ring then went to gangster Joe Casino, a friend of Columbo. Casino was taking no chances with the curse, and he put the ring in a locked glass case. Whether he was convinced by friends not to be superstitious, or he thought the curse had worn off, he started to wear the ring. Within a week, he was struck and killed by a truck. The ring then went to Joe's brother, Del Casino. Very aware of the ring's reputation, he did not even put it on the glass. He stuck it in a safe. In June 1938, director Eddie Small decided to make a film about Rudolph Valentino. He was considering an unknown actor named Jack Dunn to play the part. Dunn was 21 years old, and he followed his former skating partner turned actress Sonia Henney to Hollywood. As part of his screen test, Small borrowed the ring from Dal Casino so Dunn could wear it. Jack was cast in the part and allowed to keep the ring, which would be used during the actual filming. Dunn's stroke of good luck was short-lived. In July, he was rushed to the hospital with a case of streptococcus infection. Within two weeks, he had died at Hollywood Hospital a day before he was set to start shooting the Valentino film. His cause of death was a rare disease called tularemia, an infection spread by contact with wild rabbits. He had contracted this when he had been out hunting. The ring was returned to Del Casino, who promptly locked it away in his home. Oddly enough, Eddie Small was then considering casting Del Casino in his movie to play the part of Valentino. Eventually, the movie plans were scrapped. Perhaps Del Casino refused to wear the ring, no matter what. Eventually, Del wanted to distance the space between the ring and him even more, so he placed it in a vault in a Los Angeles bank. Erroneously, there is a report that a thief named James Willis stole the destiny ring from Del Casino. The truth of the matter is that in November of 1940, 
Willis robbed a publicist named Bev Barnett, who was holding another ring that belonged to Valentino, which was just a regular gold band. Inside it was inscribed, Rudolph Valentino, 1924. It was part of the loot that was recovered by police after they shot Willis. Eventually, Willis died from the gunshot wound. In November 1939, the ring had been found in the dirt by actress Rochelle Hudson and her husband while they were hiking in the area above Falcon's Lair, Valentino's former home in Benedict Canyon. While they were traveling, they left it with their publicists. Lucky for them, it was stolen because it appears all of Valentino's jewelry was cursed. Presently, the exact whereabouts of Valentino's cursed destiny ring is unknown. Some believe it is still in the Los Angeles bank and is under the control of Del Casino's executors. Others think it's not there any longer. Based on a story which appeared in a 1966 book authored by Shaw Mank and Brad Steiger titled Valentino, an intimate and shocking expose. In September 2017, a portrait of Valentino and Pola Negri wearing the cursed ring went up for sale. The painting was done by Federico Beltran Masses. A month after Valentino's death, even then, the notoriety of the ring was well established. The point of the story is that because the ring had belonged to Rudy Valentino, it has been written about for several years. The origin of the jinx on this ring was never known. More obscure stories and trails of misfortune follow other objects that are never publicized. Many do end up locked away in vaults, others in shops, waiting for another Rudy to take it home with them. Do not be that person. And it seems that Rudy's ghost is seen all over the place. Because even though his career was short-lived, his afterlife has endured for 85 years. In fact, according to Hollywood ghost lore, Valentino is one of the busiest spirits in Hollywood. Even the ghost of his beloved dog, Kabar, who died three years after his master, has been known to lick hands of those who pass his grave at the L.A. Pet Memorial Park in Calabasas. Valentino supposedly haunted his Beverly Hills mansion, Falcon Lair, which was bulldozed in 2006. According to ex-wife Natasha Rambova, who maintained that she was in contact with him in the afterlife, Valentino refused to believe he was dead, so he wouldn't leave the premises, visiting the corridors, his bedroom, and his stables. Veteran actor Harry Carey claimed to have come into contact with Valentino's ghost after he bought the mansion. His ghost also supposedly has appeared at a vintage Hollywood apartment complex named Valentino Place that was the site of a speakeasy actor frequented. Other locations where the ghost of Valentino has been spotted it includes a beach house in Oxnard that was his home during the filming of The Sheik, a room at the Santa Maria Inn on the Central Coast and the Knickerbocker Hotel in Hollywood. Valentino is buried in a crypt at Hollywood Forever and his ghost supposedly has been spotted next door at Paramount, where the actor used to work. According to reports by security guards and others on the lot, Valentino visits the studio dressed all in white in his chic costume. DeMille's Lost City. In November 2017, a sphinx head standing six feet tall and weighing over 300 pounds was unearthed by six archaeologists. It's not thousands of years old. It's not even 100 years old. It was left behind in 1923 when Cecil B. DeMille filmed the silent movie The Ten Commandments on the sand dunes on the Central California coastline. Along the Central California coastline, 
is a little-known archaeology site and wildlife refuge in the farm town of Guadalupe, eight miles northwest of Santa Maria. The Dune Center works on excavating items unearthed from the massive set where Cecil B. DeMille filmed the silent movie back in the early 20s. As he was finishing the film, headlines around the world heralded the discovery of King Tut's tomb in Egypt. However, after filming was complete, DeMille not wanting second-rate directors to use his dune set, he had his crew cover the entire 720-foot set in sand, covering 21 plaster sphinxes, the backdrops, and the massive Pharaoh's Gate. He had used over 1,600 workers to build the city of Pharaohs. He bought in the crew from everywhere. Over the years, it crumbled and was buried in the scenic coastal dunes, becoming known as the lost city of DeMille. Director Peter Broslin set out to find the ruins in the 1980s, though excavation didn't begin until several years later. By then, wind erosion had uncovered part of it. Along with liquor bottles and tobacco tins, Excavators unearthed several sphinxes out of the 21 that were built for the set. The head of a sphinx was discovered in 2012 when the team returned to unearth the body in 2017. They found another one instead, which took eight days to remove. Brosnan's 2017 documentary, The Lost City of Cecil B. DeMille, tells the story of the project, including interviews with residents who witnessed the filming in 1923. Some have seen Cecil B. DeMille's ghost at this old set. He often stated that his first Ten Commandment films was his favorite. Some feel this is the reason why he haunts these dunes. He went on later to direct the other Ten Commandments, which is more well-known because Charlton Heston started. DeMille was a flamboyant character that always wore riding boots, khaki breeches, and a broad-brimmed hat while he directed his films. Witnesses state they have seen his figure dressed in this attire standing in front of the old set, his feet firmly planted in the sand. His ghost is known to motion to witnesses to move. Some speculate he felt he was directing them. Other witnesses have stated that his ghost glares at them while they talked. It seems he is aware of the living. The Gruesome Greystone Mansion It was the Roaring Twenties. Prohibition was still in effect and Hollywood land flourished when architect Gordon Kaufman designed a lavish home for the Doheny family which was perched above Beverly Hills. The family moved into Greystone Mansion in 1928 when it was reported as the most expensive home ever built in California. Ned Dohaney Jr. moved into the spectacular Tudor-style mansion with his wife and two children in late 1928. The home was a gift from his father, notorious oil tycoon Edward Dohaney, who made a fortune and narrowly escaped incarceration for his role in the Teapot Dome scandal. Doheny Jr., however, was not to enjoy the spoils for long. Just four months later, on a fateful night in early February, Doheny's boyhood friend and secretary, Hugh Plunkett, arrived at the mansion and let himself in. Ned's wife, Lucy, saw no reason to find such a visit curious. As a visitor made his way to Doheny's in a spare bedroom, her suspicions were only aroused after a single gunshot echoed from the home's east wing. What transpired before and after that shot remains a mystery to this day, as stories from the surviving parties become nonsensical and timelines fail to coalesce. Forgoing police involvement, Mrs. Doheny summoned the family doctor from a nearby movie theater. 
Upon his arrival, the two made their way to the room containing the late Doheny and Plunkett. The latter is said to have answered the door, gun in hand, and highly agitated, only to close and bar the door once more. The wife and doctor then heard another shot ring out, and both men were found dead, lying in pools of blood, once access was gained. Lucy claimed that she and the doctor had found the bodies around midnight, but for some reason the police weren't called until two in the morning. What's more, when the police arrived, they found that both bodies had been moved and that the statements of the witnesses seemed rehearsed. Lucy claimed that the bodies were moved because the doctor had tried to revive the men. Though the police had their suspicions, after two days, the coroner ruled the case a murder-suicide and blamed Hugh Plunkett for going temporarily insane. Newspapers leapt on the sensational events at Greystone Mansion, claiming it was the act of an unstable madman fraught with jealousy. But the exact events of the night, or a clear motive, were never determined. Forensic evidence painted an even more complicated picture of the evening, including Plunkett having been shot from behind at a short distance while smoking a cigarette. Regardless of these factual complications, the case was ruled a murder-suicide, closed, and the families continued with their lives. Almost from the beginning, scandal ensued. Was this some lingering repercussion to the Teapot Dome scandal, which seemed to implicate the senior Doheny? Had Plunkett succumbed to madness, or was the relationship between the two more than platonic? A jealous rage, implicating perhaps even Ned's wife Lucy? Several alternate theories popped up over the years. One theory claimed that Ned was the one who called the doctor, not Lucy, to calm Hugh down. Another theory is that Ned and Hugh were romantically involved, and that perhaps either Ned killed himself or that Lucy killed both of the men. There was both a mystery concerning the motive and who truly killed who. While the case was closed, mystery continued to shroud the Greystone deaths and Greystone Mansion. In fact, stories of ghosts haunting the halls have been reported throughout the mansion's history. Some reports seeing a man in a black suit, while others claim to see the ghost of Lucy Doheny. A morning, Edward Doheny Sr. donated his son's former residence to the public, and in 1976, it was added to the National Register of Historic Places. Ever since, Greystone Mansion has appeared in more films and television series than nearly any other home in California, including The Big Lebowski, Ghostbusters 2, Gilmore Girls, MacGyver, The Witches of Eastwick, and more. You may recognize the distinctive black-and-white tiled hallway from one film, its ornate wood paneling office from another. But chances are you've already seen the interior of this historic Beverly Hills mansion without knowing it. While visitors aren't permitted inside this historic Beverly Hills mansion, all are welcome to roam the palatial estate freely. And who knows, you might just cross paths with one of the ghosts. The City of Angels, despite its name, has a dark history replete with murder houses, serial killers that call it home, creepy cemeteries and places that the dearly party just refused to vacate. These are some of those places. First one is a house called Castillo del Lago. It's a nine-bedroom chateau on Mulholland Drive, which was built in 1926, as were many other mansions erected with the newly minted money pouring from Hollywoodland in that decade. It was designed by John Delario for the oil baron, Patrick Longden. However, in 1929, the market crashed and the luxurious home sat vacant for many years. Then Bugsy Siegel came to California 
and lease the house. He also ran a secret casino there. And no doubt if the walls could talk, they would speak of dark deeds that never came to light. Bugsy Siegel moved to his house in Beverly Hills, where he died in 1947 and Lucky Luciano put a hit out on him. Castillo del Lago became a home to many during the intervening years until it again sat vacant in the 1950s. In 1988, Tom Murray, a photographer doing a shoot there for three days, reported malfunctioning equipment and his entire crew complained of a creepy feeling inside. He said, all the Polaroids I shot on the house came out black. I tried different cameras, different film, everything. It was always the same. Everything I tried to photograph inside that house came out black. In 1993, Madonna bought it and spent $3 million on renovating the Spanish colonial house. Despite the expense, many of the neighbors thought the result was tasteless and that she ruined it. According to the book, Hollywood Haunted, Madonna complained of feeling a force throughout the house, a force that was not safe. A caretaker complained of hearing a man call his name when he was there alone at night and doors locking behind him when he went outside. On May 29, 1995, Robert Hoskins trespassed and came looking for Madonna, threatening to either marry or kill his love. For his trouble, he was shot by a security guard after he jumped a fence. He was convicted and served 10 years for the offense. In 2012, he escaped from the Metropolitan State Hospital in Norwalk, to which he was committed. He was quickly recaptured, and one has to wonder if he was going to head over to Castillo del Lago. The last known thing is that Joe Pitka bought it in 1997 from Madonna. Leon Max bought the home in 2010 from him for less than half the 14.9 million asking price. Cobb Estate. Charles Cobb started off as a humble lumberjack in Maine. He moved to Washington and became a successful capitalist. He went on to serve as president of International Lumber Company. In 1918, he and his wife Carrie built a Spanish-themed mansion in the shadow of Echo Mountain on a 107-acre property. It was known as the Cobb Estate. In 1929, a 72-year-old woman was found walking on the grounds of the estate by the gardener. She'd been missing for three days, and the family offered $500 reward for her return. Hundreds of volunteers had been looking for her. She wandered around without food or water, and the family was perplexed that with so many looking for her, she was not sighted earlier. She was a neighbor to the Cobbs, and till this day, no one can explain how she survived those three days. Carrie Cobb died in 1935, and Charles Cobb followed her in 1939. He willed the home to the Pasadena Scottish Rite Temple, which he had been actively involved with. The lodge placed it for auction in 1941, and within a year, the new owner sold it to someone else. It passed through hands several more times, including becoming a nun's retreat for the Sisters of St. Joseph. By the 1950s, it stood empty, and was frequently vandalized by criminals who squatted there. It also developed a reputation for being haunted. It was known locally as the Haunted Forest. The Marx Brothers bought it in 1956 and raised it in 1959. In 1963, there was a proposal to turn the acreage into a cemetery. The Marx Brothers applied for a variance of the code in order to facilitate the sale. However, the neighbors in the area were strongly opposed to it. So it sat unused until 1971, 
when the generosity of a private donor allowed the purchase of the estate by the city and it became a public parkland. The interest gates were featured in the 1979 thriller Phantasm as the gates to Morningside Cemetery. The Sam Merrill Trail falls beyond the gate labeled Cobb Estate. Three miles down it leads to Mount Lowell Railway, which once shuttled Victorian vacationers up and down the mountainside to the tourist destination once known as the White City. It, along with the railway, were abandoned in 1938 after a series of mudslides, windstorms, and fires destroyed the attraction. Those walking along the trail complain of feelings of being watched. Cameras and other equipment also malfunction. In 2019, a woman's body was discovered inside a tent off a trail at the Cobb Estate. It was sitting along a dirt road leading to a water tank in Las Flores Canyon. It came to the police's attention when a foul smell came from the tent. The police commented there was no sign of foul play and the body appeared to be long decomposed. The woman's identity remains a mystery to this day. Who was she? Where did she come from? And how did she remain undiscovered for so long in such a popular hiking area? Nobody has the answer. El Capitan Theater. On Hollywood Boulevard was built a theater in 1926 and for the first 15 years, only stage shows were shown. Then came the silent films. Then in 1941, it was remodeled and became the Paramount Hollywood Theater, devoted to first runs of Paramount Pictures. Citizen Kane premiered the same year. It was the site of a suicide in the balcony seats and the death of a manager in its office. Then in 1989, Disney restored the theater as well as the adjacent Hollywood Masonic Temple. Rumors circulated that Disney walled off the window above the entryway where one of the ghosts could still be seen. Employees described seeing apparitions in shadow form flitting about as well as a man sitting in a balcony seat when the theater is closed and supposedly empty. When they approach him, he disappears. A visitor to the theater in 2015 described their counter with something strange in this way. My family went to watch the movie up. We sat third row from the back and the theater was fairly empty. No one sitting for at least five rows in front of us and no one behind us. Right before the lights dim, something stroked the back of my neck. I thought it was strange, knowing that no one was sitting behind us. I turned around to look in case someone had snuck in, but there was no one there. The rest of the movie went without incident until right before the end. We had been shopping before we came in, so I had two small shopping bags between my feet. I was using a small camera bag as a purse and it was placed in one of the bags. All of a sudden, I felt something moving by my foot. I looked down and didn't see anything. Then I felt it again. I leaned down to pick up the shopping bag and I couldn't quite grab it. The camera bag inside of it was moving or rolling as best a nearly square object can, and as I tried to pick it up, the bag that was in it, it started rolling faster. I kept trying to grab the shopping bag, but missing. The camera case rolled over my foot and landed with the shopping bag on the other side, then stopped. I picked up the shopping bag to see if there was anything else inside it, but there wasn't. And the truth is, I don't think I ever really truly wanted to find out what had been in there. The Lincoln Height Jail opened in 1931 and it was built on the site of the old East Side Police Station. It was built to house only 600 prisoners. However, in 20 years, it held almost 2,800. In 1951, 
The bloody Christmas scandal broke when seven prisoners were brutally beaten by LAPD officers. Eventually, they were indicted and convicted of using excessive force. James Elroy's novel, L.A. Confidential, was inspired by the incident and the jail was used during the filming location during the 1997 film. The jail was decommissioned in 1965, but its menace extended into the most recent past. In 1994, Johnny Flores, age 78, prominent in the Los Angeles boxing circuit and decorated World War II veteran, was discovered dead at the bottom of an elevator shaft at the Lincoln Heights Gymnasium. He had been missing for two days. The fifth floor of the building, once a jail, was converted into the Los Angeles Youth Athletic Club, and parts of the old Art Deco building were in poor condition. It appears the elevator was stuck between floors, and he stepped into thin air when the doors opened. Throughout the years, notorious criminals spent time behind bars there. In 1928, William Edward Hickman was housed at Lincoln and executed at San Quentin. He was convicted of strangling a 12-year-old girl. He cut off her arms and legs. He extorted ransom money from the family and later turned out he carried the girl's body with him when he picked up the money. Wrapped in a blanket, her eyes were wired open to peer as if she was alive. He had removed her organs, which were later found littered around Los Angeles. Novelist Raymond Chandler slept off a binge in his drunk tank, and his female section actress Lucille Watson also spent a night forgetting too carried away with drink. Locals who participated in the Zoot Suit Riots of 1943 and the Watts Riot of 1965 were jailed there. The boiler room scene in Nightmare on Elm Street was shot there as well. Throughout the years, the location has spawned stories of weird encounters and sightings of human-shaped shadows that lingered in places that were empty. As late as 2020, workmen complained of feelings of being watched and tools being moved or disappearing. Los Angeles Pet Cemetery. In the 1920s, the land was owned by Hollywood financier Gilbert H. Beesmeyer. In 1929, he was sent to San Quentin to serve a 40-year sentence for embezzling $8 million. By then, the land was subdivided into 10-acre parcels, and veterinarian Dr. Eugene Jones bought a tract. He buried his own dog on the property and opened the L.A. Pet Park and a Hollywood Pet Funeral Parlor, the second one in the United States. Celebrity pets interred there are Rudolph Valentino's dog, Gabar, who let out a howl at precisely the time of the star's death, even though his owner was 3,000 miles away in New York. Others are Hopalong Cassidy's horse, Topper, and at least one of the PDs, the bully dog, who starred in The Little Rascals, Charlie Chapman's cat, Humphrey Bogart's dog, Mae's West's cat, as well as the furry friends of Mary Pickford, Harry James, Ava Gabor, Gloria Swanson, and Bob Newhart. Even the MGM lion Tawny, who died in 1940, is buried there, sharing a plot with his best friend, a small house cat. Currently, over 40,000 animals are interred inside the park. It is Kabar that apparently haunts the grounds, licking unsuspecting visitors' hands. But then, who is to say? In truth, there's a cast of thousands that could be brushing by your leg or laying at your feet when you stop for a moment to take in the scenery. Los Feliz Murder House. In the early morning hours of December 6, 1959, Dr. Harold Pearlson took a ball-peen hammer to his sleeping wife's head. He killed her. Then he headed to his daughter Judy's room and hit her as well. She awoke and started screaming. She was able to escape to a neighbor's house, leaving behind her brother and sister. 
The neighbor returned, found the other children unhurt, and came upon Harold Pearlson on the second floor, agitated and dripping blood. Pearlson told him to leave, and once alone took an overdose of pills. He was found dead lying on the floor next to his wife's blood-splattered bed, with a hammer still in his hand. Financial stressors were believed to have been the cause, but later was revealed that reports of coronaries Pearlson had supposedly suffered were in reality failed suicide attempts with drugs. Lillian Pearlson was considering committing her husband to an institution for the mentally insane shortly before her murder. An aunt took custody of the children and the house went up for auction. It was bought by Julian and Evelyn Enriquez. Strangely enough, they kept the house as it was, still full of the family's belongings. They did bring some of their things and connected a phone, but no one could understand why they would never remove the traces of the horrible event that took place there. Julian Enriquez died, and his wife Emily followed him in 1994. Their son Rudy inherited the property, and in the same tradition as his parents, he kept everything as it was for over 50 years. Squatters snuck into the yard and neighbors complained. One commented, hookers were coming in, everybody was bringing guests up there. One night, I was sitting outside and I noticed that people were over there having a picnic in the backyard. Despite a security system, curiosity seekers continued to try to get an entrance and see with their own eyes the mementos left behind from that grisly night in 1959. Since the six decades when Pearlson lost his mind, those snooping through the interior of the house have described weird experiences and fleeting shadows in a supposedly empty house. Neighbors complain of having their alarm system go off inexplicably. Rudy Enriquez died in 2015, and without an heir, the house went up for sale. The millionaire hoarder kept everything inside the home, including Dr. Pearlson's patient records and personal belongings from each family member. Attorney Lisa Bloom bought it at auction for $2.29 million, but within three years, she put it back up for sale. She'd gutted a large portion of the home spending close to $3 million, but claimed that further remodeling would require an expense she wasn't willing to undertake. It sold in July 2021 for $2.35 million. Lest you believe the Pearlsons were the only ones to suffer a premature and unexpected death, it started many years before with the first owners of the house, located at 2475 Glendower Place. Built in 1925 for Harry Schumacher, a fruit shipper and his wife, they did not live long to enjoy their new home. Florence Schumacher died July of 1928 at age 41 from heart disease. The day after her burial, Harry Schumacher became ill and he died within less than 30 days on July 30th from pneumonia. He was 41 years old as well. In 1932, the Schumacher estate was offered an auction. This included the house and the furnishings. The New York Post reported, even so, the house racked up an impressive number of deaths. At least two other owners besides the Schumachers and tenants have died in the house. Then the house was rented to several tenants, one of whom died of infection during his tenancy. The house then stood without incident for almost three decades. The Pearlsons had only lived in the house for a few years. They purchased the home in or before 1956 when they applied for a permit to move a window records show. In the book Hollywood Obscura, Different legend trippers and paranormal investigators have described unusual experiences around the house. A common occurrence seems to be the sounds of screams and moans being heard by intrepid ghost hunters 
in the wee morning hours. The hunters are reported hearing the sound of a woman calling no in a terrified voice, followed by her frantic screaming and then silence. As to sightings, the most reported are faces that stare out of the windows of the old mansion. The hunters tell of seeing the face of a woman staring at them through one of the upstairs windows. She will gaze at them for a few minutes and then simply vanish from sight. Rudy Enriquez dismissed the stories of ghosts. He said, I've never looked at it as being haunted. The only spooky thing there is me. Tell people to say their prayers every morning and evening and they'll be okay. Many neighbors thought the house would be demolished. One who was interviewed in 2009 said, You can't have a house sit empty for 50 years and not expect it to fall apart. It's a teardown now. It's a shame. However, fate intervened and now it hangs in the balance. Whether it will be raised to conform to local ordinances or the new owners will continue to keep the memories and perhaps the ghost among familiar surroundings. The Pyrenees Castle. The castle was built in 1926 for the Basque rancher Sylvester Dupuis. Based on his memories of a chateau he saw as a young boy growing up in southern France. Within 10 years, he lost his fortune and he died in April of 1937. His children sold it in 1946. It was renamed to the Pyrenees Castle Apartments and it was converted into an eight-apartment structure. Anna Dupuis, Sylvester's widow, lived there until her death in 1949. By 1977, it was up for sale and now called the Dupuis Castle. In 1985, it was called the Alhambra Circle by the realtor handling the new sale of the property. It stayed for sale for several years, the price being lowered until 1998 when Phil Spector bought it for little more than a million dollars. It was rumored he moved to the property to escape accusations of drunken rages and domestic abuse. He'd been married several times and had four children. His nine-year-old son, Philip, died in 1991 from leukemia. In 2003, he was arrested for the murder of actress Lana Clarkson, age 40. He shot her in the mouth and said she had accidentally committed suicide. However, his driver, who made the emergency call from the castle, later testified that Spectre said, I think I've killed someone. The 62-year-old was released on bail, but was eventually convicted of her murder in 2009. He died January 2021, age 81, serving his prison sentence. In May of 2021, the Pyrenees Castle sold for $3.3 million, a 40% discount from its original $5.5 million listing price in 2019. This was done as part of a divorce settlement. As to who haunts that castle? Well, just think, who do you think? would be walking those halls of that chateau.